if Christ is in you, you will make the right decision. Some of you have grown a little bit more. Some of you are a little bit older. And now you're going to be making the decision whom you will marry. If Christ is in you, the choice that you make for your spouse will be guided by Christ being in you. As you get a little bit older and you have to try to make decisions about where you will work and for whom you will work and even the type of work that you might do, if Christ is in you, you will make choices reflecting His will. You see, the truth is, Christ in you, the hope of glory, involves our taking Jesus with us everywhere we go. You see, our faith ought to impact not only our private life, but also our public life. Now, we're told by the mass media that if you're a pervert, if you're a person who has chosen to go it your own way, you ought to celebrate it. You ought to tell everybody what you're doing. But the same media tells each of us that if you are a Christian, you ought to keep it to yourself or at least just participate when you go to your church services. You see, the truth is, Paul said in chapter 3, verse 17, the verse that precedes our text, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Clearly you and I ought to be more concerned about what God wants than what this world wants. Because if we do what God wants, things will be well. Proverbs 16 verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This morning what we want to do is to take Colossians chapter 3, we want to begin at verse 18, and we want to look at two things. We want to look, Christ in the home place, and then Christ in the workplace, in verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. You see, as you and I start looking at our lives, we need to think about how Christ affects our homes, the place where we, you and I live. Yes, Mama and Daddy and the kids. If we're going to be Christians, we're going to be Christians everywhere. The choices we make, the words that we say, reflect where the Christ is in us. Paul would write, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. As you begin to look at that passage, you realize that being a Christian, being a believer in Christ, affects everybody in the family. You see, what he begins with is this idea of whether or not the Lord lives in our homes. For some people, the Lord would be a stranger in our house, would not feel welcome at all. For others, he may be a visitor. He's there occasionally when 
things are needful for him to be there. But the truth is he needs to live in our homes and be there all the time. What Paul will do is discuss the roles and the responsibilities that God has given each. He begins, first of all, with wives, and he says they are to be in subjection to or submission to their own husbands. This is not a rare, unique occurrence. This is something that is taught throughout the rest of the scriptures. In Ephesians 5, verse 22, he would say, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, talking about the older women, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient, to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by the conduct of their wives. I know we live in a society today that says that no one should submit to anyone else, that none of us should put ourselves and say that they are over me and I am responsible to them. And yet scriptures say that we are. And in this case, the wife is to submit to the role of her husband as being the head of the house. I know that there are people who no longer want that to be included in their vows. I don't want it to say submit or to obey. And yet, if Christ is in you, you will say, young women, new wives, I'm going to submit and subject myself to my husband. It literally is a voluntary placing of a person under another. When I say voluntary, I'm saying it is a choice that a person makes. A good illustration is found in Luke 2, verse 51. Jesus the child. It says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. While Jesus was a child, he was subject to both Mary and Joseph. He was responsible to be obedient to their rules and their directions. In Titus chapter 3 verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. Every one of us are subject to someone else or something else. And wives must learn that in in the home, the husband is the one God has designated to be the head of the house. But then he turns from the role of the wife to the role of the husbands. And they have a dual responsibility. Paul would say that husbands are to love their wives. And just like the submissiveness of the wife to the husband, this is not a unique occurrence because in Ephesians 5 verse 25 through verse 29... 
Paul would say, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, and no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. The type of love that Paul describes here is sacrificial in the sense that he gave himself up for the church. But it is also a type of love that recognizes the preciousness of one's wife. He nourishes and cherishes it. You see, the Lord loves and cherishes the church. Husbands must love and cherish their wives. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, Paul gives a description of what love involves. Love is suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. The type of love that is described here, if a husband possesses it, his wife will have no trouble being submissive to him. Because he will be treating her just like he would want to be treated himself. In fact, even better. It's a kind of love that does not have a self-centeredness to it but one that is serving in and of itself. The second part of what he says here, though, is to not be bitter against them. The word bitter is a synonym for harshness, as in James chapter 3, verse 14. The new linguistic and exegetical key to the Greek New Testament defines this word as a perpetual irritation or fault-finding. We often speak of a woman nagging her husband, but do you realize that when Paul says do not become bitter toward them, he's saying husbands don't nag your wives. He is in essence saying that you should not be a perpetual irritation. You should not be harsh toward them. You see, if Christ is in us, We act as Christ would have us to act, not giving in to the childishness and pettiness that's a part of this world. James 3.14 says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not lie and boast against the truth. You've looked at the father, you've looked at the mother, you've looked at the husband, you've looked at the wife, but now... Children are to obey your parents in all things. All things. To obey is literally to listen under. 
Your parents have education and experience you do not have. I remember very vividly as a teenager thinking that my parents did not understand. Only to live long enough to realize not only did they understand, they understood it all. They understood the good and the bad. They understood the significance and the consequences of choices that were made. And my parents loved me. And they wanted me to do the right thing for the right reason. And so sometimes they would say no when I thought they ought to say yes. Sometimes they would say work when I thought they ought to say rest. You see, parents have been children. Parents have gone through this kind of experience themselves. It's easy to obey when the child agrees. But if you obey in all things, you obey even when you may disagree. Paul would write the Ephesians, chapter 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. You respect and honor your parents. But then he turns to the parents, specifically the fathers, and says to them, do not provoke your children. And in doing so, he's indicating being harsh or unnecessarily severe. Do parents have the right and even the responsibility to discipline their children? Absolutely they do. In fact, he who spares a rod does not love his child. The Bible talks about the one who disciplines them, chastens them at the proper time. And yet... Just like God, for every son whom he loves, he chastens. It's always got to be motivated by love and not of anger. And this kind of discipline must not bring about a harshness that causes the child to be discouraged. He says the result here is to be discouraged. The lexicon which, to which I often refer, the often referred to as BDAG, means to become disheartened to the extent of losing motivation, to be discouraged, to lose heart, to become dispirited. Have you ever been talked down to to the point where you got where you didn't care anymore? Have you ever been rebuked so severely that you felt as if you had nothing for which to live? He's saying that kind of discipline should not be practiced. The kind of love that a parent should have. Do not provoke your children. Perhaps it's best to notice Ephesians 6, 4 again. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but... Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. 
Now, we talked about Christ in the home place, but now what about Christ in the workplace? Do we, as the song says, take the name of Jesus with us? Does it affect those with whom we work? Let's begin at verse 22 and read through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in all things your master's according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We don't exactly live in the same kind of situation that they did. And so for the purpose of our understanding, we have to look and see where we work and with whom we work and what kind of relationship we sustain with those who are over us or those who may be under us. Everyone should want to have a Christian as a boss or as an employee. You see, because if the Christian is a boss and they're going to act right as a boss ought to act. And if a Christian is an employee, they ought to be the most honest, the most hardworking, the most dedicated employee you ought to be able to have. Let's explore that a little bit. He begins by speaking about bond servants. I think the word that conveys the best in our language is the word slave. It's a person that's owned by someone else. They have a title of ownership to you just like you have a title of ownership to your automobile. They control every aspect of your life. When you think about those who were masters in the first century and even to those who in countries that still permit slavery today, there's some that are good. They treat those who work for them with kindness and respect. But you also recognize there are some who are mean and harsh. In 1 Peter 2 verse 18, Servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. What is he suggesting? God wants those of us who serve under someone else to give them fear, to give them respect. Not just to those who are good to us, but even to those who might not be good to us. Not just to those who treat us well, but those who may even treat us badly. If I were to ask how many of you have ever worked a job where your supervisor, your boss, maybe even the owner of the company was mean and harsh and uh, unkind to you. I dare say all of us could raise our hands. 
What's sad, though, is, is I worked at a place for a while, and my supervisor was one of the meanest women I've ever met in my life. And you know what I did? I quit. A lot of other jobs that were available. But you know, if a master owns you, you can't quit. And you can't turn and say, I'll go somewhere else. Under this obligation, God said, I want you to be obedient and submissive to them. That's even a greater challenge. The word to obey here is the same word that was used with regards to the children. To put yourself under, to listen under. And he was even more plain. He says, not with eye service as men pleasers. Don't do what you know they expect of you just when they're present. Don't just try to show yourself to be someone who is righteous, really be righteous. He says, do it sincerely. In fact, not only that, he says, do it heartily. Put your heart into it. As unto the Lord, recognizing Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, you do what he would have you to do. One who does wrong will be repaid. And he says there's no partiality. You might say, but I'm being mistreated. You do wrong, you'll be held accountable for that. So even in the face of difficulty, you do what is right always. Then he turns his attention to the masters. And he tells those masters to give their bondservants what is just and fair. The truth is, God's always been concerned about fair treatment. Whether it is between a master and a slave, or a slave and a master, or between two brethren, God has always wanted fairness to exist. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 15, Each day you shall give him his wages, and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and has his heart set on it lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Now here's something difficult for some people to understand. There's some people who are wealthy enough that not only do they have enough to sustain themselves, they have enough to sustain other people as well. And for them it is not a daily bread in the sense that they've got to go out and work For today to be able to have bread to eat today. But he looks at that man there who does live hand to mouth. Day to day. And he says, when that man comes to be paid, you don't withhold it from him. He set his heart on it. That's where his meal's going to come from. Masters had to realize they had to be fair to those who served under them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, 
Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. It is, is it the oxen that God is concerned about, or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes should be a partaker of his hope. If a man is working and doing his job, he has the right to have an expectation to be paid for what he has done. James 5 verse 4, he talks about those who had mowed their fields. And he says, you kept back by fraud. And they're going to cry out and God is going to hear. The reason being is you also have a master. Perhaps one of the best illustrations of this could be found in Matthew 18. Right after teaching about forgiveness, Peter asked the question of the Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, I don't say up to seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he tells a parable. How that an owner began to settle his accounts with his servants. There was one brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. An astronomical amount of money. The man pled and the master forgave. And he was able to walk away debt free. On the other hand, he goes out and he finds a man who owes him a hundred denarii. Not a little amount of money. A little bit over three months' salary. He'd look at him and say, you pay me what you owe. But he wouldn't and he throwed him in jail. The point being, in verse 34, Jesus said, if you won't forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father's not going to forgive yours. The way you treat other people is the way God will treat you. Masters, if you treat your servants harshly, unfairly, you can expect the same. Ephesians 6 verse 9 says, And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatenings, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, And there's no partiality with him. Interesting. He told the slave, he told the bondservant, there's no partiality. And he tells the master, there's no partiality with God. He doesn't favor the rich, nor does he favor the poor. God is fair to all. We ought to take Jesus with us everywhere, not just to church. He ought to live in our homes and he ought to go with us to work. You and I ought to be the kind of people that people who see us, whether it's our family or whether it's those who are our fellow workers, they ought to know that we're Christians. Sadly, though, some people are ashamed of that. Luke 9, 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. If you and I are ashamed of our Lord, He will be ashamed of us. 
Why not own the Lord in everything that you do? Take the name of Jesus with you. But you see, the truth is, in all of the discussion here, you've got to be a Christian. Sadly to say, this morning, some of you have not yet confessed your faith in Christ, repented of your sins, and been baptized. When we sing this song of encouragement, the purpose will be to urge you to do that. Some of us have not been living like we're Christians. And we need to correct it. When we sing the song of encouragement, it's for you as well. We're going to sing number 588, Sinners Jesus Will Receive. If you need to respond, would you come as together we stand and sing?